Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again. Another China history podcast, our 99th. We're into triple digits, starting with the next one. We, we, we. The Royal China History Podcast. I say. I read a piece last month in Jeremy Goldcorn's world-renowned Donway.com site about Sidney Rittenberg. The piece was written by Allison Carol Goldman. It's dated August 3rd, if you want to check that out on Donway.com. Now, Sidney Rittenberg was a topic on my list, I think, from the earliest days of the China History Podcast. The man who stayed behind. If you're hearing this name for the first time in your life, other than the surname, which sort of gives away his Jewish ancestry, you're probably wondering, who's he? What did he do to merit inclusion into the China History Podcast? And many of you are also wondering, hey, you did three European Jesuits last time, and now another Western guy? What's with the foreigners? This phenomenon dawned on me sometime beyond the point of no return when I was almost done researching Sidney Rittenberg's historic life. I promise with the next history episode, we'll have a no-Western policy. Sidney Rittenberg just turned 91 last month. He's living up in the gorgeous Pacific Northwest of the U.S. with his wife of 56 years, Yulin, like many of these people I have mentioned in previous podcasts, there's a lot of them come to think of it. There's the Jesuits, Ruggieri, Ricci, Shawl, and Verbeest. We also did Sir Robert Hart, Carl Crow, and in CHP 62, we featured four foreigners who are interred at Babaoshan Cemetery, Anna Louise Strong, Agnes Smedley, George Hatem, and Israel Epstein. Sidney Rittenberg had met them all, knew them personally. Well, one more for your collection today. Sidney Rittenberg. His life is being featured in a recent documentary. You can go buy it on DVD. It's called The Revolutionary. Irv Drasnin is the producer, writer, narrator, and interviewer. His partner on this documentary is Lucy Ostrander, who conceived and produced the film. You could get more info at revolutionarymovie.com. Lucy Ostrander knew of Sidney Rittenberg from the work she did on her master's thesis, a film about Anna Louise Strong. Back when Anna Louise Strong was in Yan'an, meeting all the leaders, whose names we have mentioned a hundred times or more in many of these podcasts, it was Sidney Rittenberg who served as her interpreter. He was part of that fabled elite group of foreigners who signed up early on in the program and made their way to Yan'an in northern Shanxi, and began to carve out a life for themselves in the new China. A lot of foreigners were cycling in and out of Yan'an in the late 30s and into the 40s. Israel Epstein, Gunther Stein, Agnes Smedley, Edgar and Helen Snow, Owen Lattimore, James Bertram, so many other reporters and scholars. Those were heady days, this period in China, mid to late 40s. It was a transition period where the Jinggangshan and Long March Mao Zedong began to change into the all-wise, all-powerful, aloof, and unapproachable great communist sage. Chairman Mao, who has been featured in so many podcasts already, he's been gone for 36 years, but the enormity of his presence today and the consequences of his policies and whims still echo today. He was bigger than life even in death. During those Yan'an days, after the Long March, after Mao had defanged Wang Ming and was the undisputed champion of the CPC, he was still an approachable guy. 
Sidney Rittenberg was there and mingled easily with the chairman. And not only Mao, Premier Zhou Enlai, Marshal Zhu De, Jiang Qing, I mean, you know, everyone. He knew them all. There was this magical time in the late 40s when the Civil War was raging, but everyone on the communist side sort of knew they were going to come out on top. And every journalist with the stamina was beating a path to Mao's cave to interview this communist revolutionary and possible future leader of China. Although the nation was still convulsing in civil war and the whole range of atrocities were happening all around, Yan'an was a beehive of activity, and Sidney Rittenberg had the good fortune to be at the right place at the right time. He saw it all. He remembered it, and he wrote all about it. He wasn't just any old fly on the wall, either. He sat at the table. And even when it was all happening, Sidney Rittenberg was fully cognizant that he was witnessing history right before his eyes. He knew these men, especially Mao, Premier Zhou, were historic men, even in their own time. Sidney Rittenberg was born on August 14, 1921, same birthday as the Guangxu Emperor and Magic Johnson. He was a southerner from the great city of Charleston, South Carolina, where the U.S. Civil War began in 1861. He was raised in relative comfort, his father being a successful local attorney. His parents fought constantly, and he didn't get on too well with his mother. From early on, despite the relative comfort he was raised in, Sidney had a strong sense of fairness and a true belief in that old maxim that everyone deserved a fair shake. A couple of the monumental causes during his early days in the 30s, growing up in the South, was civil rights and labor. He fought for civil rights, and he fought for labor rights, and he naturally gravitated towards communism and the radical student movement of the early 1940s. He was 22 years old, 1943, when he joined the Army. He was based in Oregon when the call came for him to enroll in this Japanese language program. Sidney didn't want to do this. The prospects of ending up as a cog in the wheel of the Japanese occupation forces didn't appeal to him at all. He was looking to serve his stint, get out, and come back to the U.S. And like Sidney Rittenberg said, that's exactly what he did. Only it took 35 years to come back. He did what he had to do, and he got himself into the Chinese language program. And from there, in September 1945 his life in China began in earnest. He went from the genteel South and a life of college and community organizing for the rights of workers, blacks, and the altogether oppressed to a life in wartime Kunming. Actually, it was post-wartime. Little Boy and Fat Man had already been dropped the month prior, and the war in the Pacific had just ended. So Sidney Rittenberg arrived in China just in time for the end of one war and the resumption of another. The nationalists and communists had been forced into an unholy alliance to fight the Japanese. Now that that was taken care of, they quickly turned on each other. Appearances were kept up for the sake of the United Nations, and so the charade of CCP-KMT cooperation, you know, appeared normal on the surface. The drama was heating up by the day, and Sidney Rittenberg unwittingly walks right into this unforgettable time in history. Once he got himself acclimated, you know, with the lay of the land in Kunming, it was only natural that this 
born leftist, Sidney Rittenberg, would gravitate to the side of the communists. His relationship begins with them in the form of little favors he was in the position to do for them. When he was in a position to aid them, even in a small way, he did it. And this is how it all started. Eh, one thing led to another. It was at this time that he was given the Chinese name that he would forever be known by in China. In the late autumn 1945, he became Li Dunbai. This is sort of a transliteration, Chinese style, of his surname, Rittenberg, Li Dunbai. Well, November 1945, the operation in Kunming that had been so essential to the war effort to defeat Japan was closed down. The U.S. military shut down the operation, pulled up stakes, and began arranging to send everyone back home. Sidney Rittenberg was just getting comfortable with his surroundings, and he was very much liking what he saw. Sidney looked around at what he saw, and he believed that he had a role to play in China. He wasn't sure what it was, but he knew his future was there. So he decided to stick around. His first move after Kunming was to Shanghai. Since he had already proven himself with the Chinese communists and sympathizers in Kunming, he didn't have too much trouble getting hooked up in Shanghai. In Kunming, Sidney Rittenberg's official role was to act as an investigator into civil cases filed by the locals against the U.S. Army. He carried out basically the same role in Shanghai. He starts mingling with many of the Shanghai communists, as well as Madame Sun Yat-sen, Song Qingling, older sister by five years to Madame Jiang Kai-shek, Song Qingling will cover in a future podcast. She was quite a powerhouse and an extremely influential woman in her day. This was only partly due to her late husband, Sun Yat-sen. She had taken Sidney Rittenberg under her wing. He clearly was looking for a way to remain in China. The U.S. military was heading for the exits, and by the end of 1945, a lot of drama was about to unfold that Sidney Rittenberg would witness firsthand. Song Qingling pulled a few strings and got Sidney a job at UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. He becomes a UN observer to the war relief effort, paid $600 a month plus $16 daily per diem. As Sidney Rittenberg tells the story, he got to see how the relief effort was carried out in the nationalist-controlled areas and in the areas controlled by the communists. He took a U.S. Navy vessel to Wuhan first. We've mentioned this city a hundred times in the China History Podcast, so much history in and around those three cities of Wuchang, Hankou, and Hanyang. This is his first posting. He meets many people there who are all written into the history books, most notable Wang Jun and Li Xiannian. These two of the Eight Immortals, I mentioned in a previous podcast, were lifelong friends of Sidney Rittenberg. Well, Sidney did his observing and was pretty affected by what he saw. His route took him through the very center of Hunan province, from Changsha to Hengyang. In the short time he had been there, not even a year, he felt that special attraction to China that so many of us feel, and he was determined to stay. So he got a good taste of relief operation KMT style. Next up was a similar relief operation to a communist-controlled area in the Dapie Mountains, which border Hubei, Henan, and Anhui. This is the center of central China. He meets up with his friends Wang Chun and Li Xiannian again, and this gives him amazing street cred because you know, those two at the time were very important and very effective on the uh, PLA food chain. Both will be featured in future podcasts. 
There in the Dapya Mountains, he meets another epic hero of China who jumped in and out of Sidney Rittenberg's life for the entirety of his 35 years in China. This great man was Zhou Enlai. Meeting Zhou Enlai had a profound effect on Sidney Rittenberg, as I guess it would on anyone. Meeting Premier Zhou gave Sidney that that final push that led him to a clear sense of purpose with what he wanted to do with his life in China. Premier Zhou had suggested to Sydney to look him up in Nanjing, where, you know, he had a base of operations at the time. And from that point onward, especially as his Chinese became more and more fluent, he began to play that role as the American advisor and the smartest man in the room, wherever and whenever matters of the English language were concerned. This was a flexible kind of a role that allowed him to be useful and necessary for all kinds of projects, negotiations, diplomacy, propaganda, you know, whatever. He did this in the Dapye Mountains, then again when he was back in Shanghai. Sidney called on Premier Zhou in Nanjing, also meeting his immortal wife, Deng Yingchao. It was then that the Great One suggested Sidney visit Yan'an to see for himself what the communists were doing. The stark contrast of how the CCP carried out relief versus the KMT impressed Sidney Rittenberg. By going to Yan'an, he could see for himself how the communists did things on a much grander scale. So he made up his mind that his destiny awaited him in Yan'an. So that's where he went. So that's where he went next, and the rest, as they say, became history. Four months later, he was Yan'an bound, accompanying the writer Mildred Price on one of those you know, China Relief Organization deals. In Beijing, he met with Ye Jianying, who came to his aid once when Sidney needed some heavy lifting. Marshal Ye told Sidney he should go to the city of Kalgan, which is better known today as Zhangjiakou, referred to in history as the North Door to Beijing. There, Sidney Rittenberg mixed with many of those who would later become the elites of the party. This included the guy in charge of the area, Marshal Nye Rongjun. The attitude at the top was that for the sake of counterbalancing their reliance on the Soviets, the communists wanted to establish relations with the U.S. Access to U.S. know-how and technology was also a driving factor. Now, we all know how it turns out. We'll slam the door in China's face till Nixon opened it back up many wasted years later. But nobody knew... That was going to happen yet. So Sidney Rittenberg really found his calling in life, and he believed by being at the right place at the right time with his fluency in Mandarin and the Chinese culture, who better than he to act as that necessary bridge that could not only join these two great countries together at this historic time, but also play an important role in maintaining those relations. That was in mid to late 1946. Officially, he might have been just the local English expert, but this got him dragged into almost every single diplomatic-related matter that involved communications with the Americans. Sidney Rittenberg was the go-to guy in Yan'an, not only for polishing a diplomatic cable, but for advice as well. No one knew America or the American psyche as well as Sidney did. So it was only natural that he was privy to a lot of secrets and closed-door meetings and you know, one-on-one -on -one consultations about how Americans might react about this or that. Kalgan, or Zhang Jiakou, being a communist stronghold, made it a target for KMT bombing missions. When the heat got turned up too high, 
Marshal Nye Rongzhen advised Sidney to start heading to Yan'an. So off to Yan'an he went, a month-and-a-half-long trek through the rough terrain of Hebei, Inner Mongolia, Shanxi, and Shanxi. October 19th, 1946, Sidney Rittenberg and his retinue arrive in Yan'an just in time for the usual Saturday evening activities. On Friday nights in Yan'an, that was movie night. They got to see whatever Hollywood films they could procure, and Saturday night, that was dancing night. A bevy of revolutionary beauties were rounded up, and right there in the caves of Yan'an, they held these dances. And of course, Mao was there. He enjoyed this kind of thing, and it was always a way to sort of hold court over his subjects and put on that act that he did and play the role of the alpha male in front of everybody. Mao was out on the dance floor, Sidney Rittenberg recalled, when he walked in. And Mao stopped dancing mid-step and turned to face him. After all, you know, that white face was always a head-turner. Chairman Mao stood stock still and faced him, and of course, Sidney Rettenberg was led forward and introduced to Mao Zedong, being such a great moment in Sidney Rettenberg's long and rich life. He remembered it well. The handshake, it was firm, but Mao was one of those guys who just sort of extended his hand and didn't shake or pump or, you know, do any of the usual stuff. And Mao said... We are happy to welcome an American comrade here to take part in our work. And just like that, Sidney vividly recalled that seeing Mao for the first time was so striking and that he looked just like any number of dramatic portraits of Mao that, you know, had been making the rounds. It truly was an amazing moment. Just a few years before, Sidney Rittenberg was a college student at Chapel Hill, chest deep in Marxism, Leninism, and the whole communist ball of wax, busy organizing and fighting for the oppressed. And now, here he was, a 25-year-old kid, still a novice in China, sitting on a bench, chit-chatting with Mao Zedong while the band played American traditional standards like Turkey in the Straw, Swanee River, My Old Kentucky Home, and You Are My Sunshine. Sidney got that first experience of being one-on-one -on -one with Mao and how the chairman would shut out everything in the room and focus intently on what you were saying and listen to every word. It was quite an extraordinary moment. But this, I guess, is the story of Sidney Rittenberg, a whole long concatenation of extraordinary moments. An ordinary guy from Charleston, South Carolina, rubbing elbows with revolutionaries who were already making history and newspaper headlines around the world. He would continue mixing with all these guys in one form or another for the next three decades. Lenin is often wrongly credited with the derogatory term useful idiot used to describe those foreigners who listened to all the propaganda and believed in all the BS. And, you know, because of this, they were often useful for all kinds of political and diplomatic situations. Sidney Rittenberg met Mao many times over the course of his life and said he didn't think Mao liked him too much for whatever reason. It was always hard to tell where he stood with Mao. I guess if you weren't in prison, he liked you. Some have argued about whether this term, useful idiot, should be applied to all these Westerners like Sidney Rittenberg who stayed on in China after 1949. I don't think so. That amazing first evening in Yan'an for Sidney Rittenberg was magical. Everyone was there. It was like an index to a history book. Zhu De and his wife, Kang Ke Ching, Jiang Qing, Kang Sheng, you know, so 
many others. They all welcomed Sidney and all the English skills he brought with him. They immediately had a use for him as a polisher of reports and diplomatic statements that they needed to make. And of course, you know, he was called in constantly to serve as an interpreter. During the Yan'an days, he was still clinging to the false hope that the U.S. and the new China would find a way to reconcile and that he could play a role in bringing the two together. He lived in a cave, just like everyone else there, Yan'an being the land of caves that had been naturally carved into the cliffs of northern Shanxi. Because he was a Westerner, of course, he was given certain privileges, which included being allowed to eat with the leaders. This included Zhou Enlai, who arrived in Yan'an in November 1946. Sidney Rittenberg applied for membership in the Communist Party. He had Wang Chun and Li Xianyan nominate him, and as required, he needed and received approval from the five top guys at the time, Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, Liu Shaoqi, Zhu De, and Ren Bishi. There weren't too many other Americans accorded this honor. I think Mahai De, George Hatem, who we discussed in CHP 62, was the only one at the time. You remember when Jiang Qing arrived in Yan'an and the whole scandal with Mao? You know, things like this that make up all the rich anecdotes from Chinese history. We read all about them in our history books, but Sidney Rittenberg, he was there when the whole drama was unfolding. Well, at this time in Yan'an, Sidney Rittenberg had been assisting and interpreting for Anna Louise Strong. She remained beloved of China's leaders all the way up till the day she died. She left Yan'an in March 1947. It's right around this time, March, April, May 1947, that the scent of the nationalist defeat became much greater. Mao led his generals to one strategic victory after another. The tide was decidedly turning against the nationalist effort in the Civil War. The American diplomats and NGO people all started to pack up and get out. Sidney Rittenberg, he decided to become the man who stayed behind, and he retreated to the relative safety of the Taihang Mountains. October 1947, he married Wei Lin, he winds up living in a small village in Henan province. He contacts TB, but gets through it alive. By the early part of 1949, the lessons learned during the Yan'an rectification movement were used once again. The CCP, so close to succeeding, started to sort things out one final time and settle scores that still needed to be settled. When these kinds of things happened... You really never knew if you'd get caught up in the dragnet. Sidney Rittenberg sure didn't. Then, out of nowhere, boom, January 21st, 1949, reality comes crashing down on Sidney Rittenberg, and he is arrested and taken away. His crime? Accepting instructions from U.S. imperialists to sabotage the revolution. The real reason, though, was because Joe Stalin had specifically ordered Mao to do this. Back in those days, all Uncle Joe had to do was snap his fingers, and the Chinese generally did what he asked. In this case, they jailed a good friend of China and threw him into a pitch-black prison cell for one year. He got to see light whenever he was tortured or interrogated. They pulled all the usual tricks out of the bag to get Sidney to confess, but confess to what? He had no idea. 
In the spring of 1950, Sidney was released from the dark prison cell that tried and failed to break his spirit. Rather than break him, the experience added fuel to the fire in his belly to right this wrong and teach his accusers that he was someone who could be trusted and was totally with the program. In the summer of 1952, he was sent to Beijing Number 2 Prison, where he lived an annual regimen of endless self-study. Marxism, Leninism, Mao's thought, classical Chinese, he read newspapers, anything he'd get his hands on. He recalls this prison cell was quite big compared to the one he had just left, five by eight paces in size. Sidney Rittenberg did two stints in prison, all the while in solitary confinement. This was the first of the two. Both times he survived because he kept control of his mind. He had his ways to cope with the personal misery. Both times he made the most of his incarceration. March 5th, 1953, Joseph Stalin dies... And with that, Sidney Rittenberg won his freedom, and it was only later that he learned it was Stalin's mistrust of Anna Louise Strong and Sidney's past association and support for her that angered Stalin and precipitated the communique to Mao to lock this troublemaker up. Actually, to someone like Stalin, the less Americans hanging around Mao, potentially influencing his opinions, the better. And that hunch on Stalin's part, cost Sidney Rittenberg six years of his life, from January 1949 to April 1955. His wife, Wei Lin, divorced him while he was in prison, but this turns out to be a good thing later on. Wei Lin and Sidney were uneasy colleagues for the rest of his days in China, both working for the same Danwei, or work unit, the radio administration, his luck changed for the better forever in May of 1955. He meets a 22-year-old colleague also at Radio Beijing named Wang Yulin. Theirs is a great love story from the way they were romantically set up, their courtship, and when they finally got married on February 11th, 1956. Ah, oh, what a good time in China it was. The Korean conflict is over. The Chinese economic engine is almost firing on all cylinders. The People's Republic of China was really starting to show something to the world. March 1957, Sydney and Yulin have their first child, a daughter who would be followed by two more girls and a boy. Life was good because of his unique skill set. Sidney Rittenberg really was an important guy. And did I say dependable? I mean, he really was a good and devoted communist. He bought the whole program. He may have been white, but he knew his stuff as well as the next communist theorist. He lived a life of privilege due to his high-level position at Radio Beijing. This was more due to that than to his race. Other than that, he lived pretty much the same as the next guy in similar societal circumstances. Well, 1957, we all know what happens. The sunshine of Sydney's whole dream of the new China starts to get a shade darker when the aftermath of the Hundred Flowers movement was launched. This is the anti-rightist campaign that sort of left a bad taste in Sydney's mouth, but he remained devoted and on message. But early 1958, well, the whole debacle of the Great Leap Forward was now just beginning it would be part of Sydney's job to travel around and report from all over the country for Radio Beijing to get the word out about how amazing and successful the Great Leap was. 
Like Mao and the other top leaders, Sidney saw the Potemkin version of everything, but he knew what was going on behind the screen. It was impossible not to. All he had to do was get out to the countryside. You can go check out CHP episode 4 for the story about the Great Leap Forward. Then came Lu Shan, and that, of course, sent the strong signal to the party elites to mind their manners when daring to speak out against the chairman. Right around the end of 1960, Sidney Rettenberg, like millions of others, began to notice how food was getting scarcer and scarcer. Meat, and then other foodstuffs, week by week, began to disappear from the market shelves. It got to the point where all you had for sale sometimes were the kinds of vegetables and fruits that you'd throw away because they were past their sell-by dates. Then, that too disappeared. That whole horrific famine, Sidney Rittenberg lived through it. And never did a day pass when he and his family didn't go to bed hungry. And he was one of the lucky ones. He watched the whole Sino-Soviet split happen as it did in slow motion like a train wreck or two ships colliding. Sidney spent the famine years working with the team in charge of translating the selected works of Mao Zedong, and this was quite a prestigious project. In August of 1963, Sidney Rittenberg is summoned by Mao. This was not an everyday occurrence in his life, not even an annual occurrence. Mao needed him for some work on a translation or something. And then in January of 64, Sidney was part of the delegation that Mao hosted a banquet for, you know, celebrating the completion of the selected works. At the banquet, Mao apologized to Sidney Rittenberg personally about that, you know, little six years in prison thing. And he said, he is a good comrade, and we treated him wrong. And with this, the sun began to shine more on Sidney Rittenberg. There was a good amount of prestige that came with getting this attention and recognition from Mao. For most of 1964 and 65, Sidney Rittenberg was at the center of things and got involved in more and more sensitive tasks. Things were really going well. But there were very disturbing signs of class struggle starting to bubble up. During this period, Sidney attended many of the same banquets and special functions as Mao, Joe, and other party elites, and, you know, meeting, visiting dignitaries. He got to see them all and mingle with them often. But all this attention and all the privileges he enjoyed began to get under Sidney Rittenberg's skin. He never let go of those egalitarian principles from the Yen'an days. He contrasted that with the privileged lifestyle he was living in 1965 Beijing, and he decided to walk the walk and stop just talking the talk. He goes into complete and total man-of-the-people mode, he forsakes his privileges, sells all his expensive furniture and adornments from his house. Well, I guess you could say some colleagues began to look at him like he was, you know, like the new cop on the force who, you know, wouldn't take the payoffs and consequently made everyone else look bad. So with all this talk, he began to make some enemies, or at least lost the support of some friends. When you start messing with CCP perks and how power is wielded, you're really playing with fire. People were very sensitive about this, and, you know, this was like the coin of the realm in the party. 
In May of 1965, the CCRG, we all remember those guys from the Cultural Revolution series, the Central Cultural Revolution Group, that's formed. And five of the ten members went way back to the Enon days with Sidney Rittenberg. And so began, I suppose, the most painful period of Sidney Rittenberg's life. When the fuse had been lit and the whole thing began to unfold, his friends and colleagues all advised Sidney, stay out of this whole cultural revolution thing. It's best you don't play an active role. Lay low. Don't get entangled in the web of politics. Keep your hands out of the fire. When Sidney got married to Yulin back in 1955, he received advice also saying, you know, don't rush in, don't write any love letters, play it cool, you know, do it this way. But he totally went against this advice, and he had luck on his side, and he won her over. Now, once again, friends were saying one thing, and he just went and did the total opposite. He climbed up and did a nice, full swan dive right into the center of the Cultural Revolution. This time he wasn't so lucky. Those crazy days in 1966 when the conflagration was just beginning to take hold, Sidney Rittenberg watched it and involved himself in everything going on. When Mao put on that red armband on August 18, 1966, Sidney Rittenberg watched it happen right in front of his eyes. On National Day 1966, Sidney Rittenberg was right up there on the Tiananmen viewing podium with all the leaders and invited guests. He mingled freely with the likes of Zhou Enlai, Lin Biao, Tao Zhu, Deng Xiaoping, Kang Sheng, Liu Shaoqi, Chen Yi. In one of the defining moments of Sidney Rittenberg's life, he approached Chairman Mao on the podium that day, and he offered his copy of the Little Red Book and asked the chairman to, you know, sign his Little Red Book. You know, he was asking for an autograph. Like many a movie star and celebrity that followed, Mao asked Sidney, what do you want me to write? And Sidney replied, just write your name. And this he did. Mao Zedong. Three Chinese characters written in the grass script. And a party photographer was on the scene at the moment and snapped a photo right as it happened. And it's this photo that forevermore became the defining photograph of Sidney Rittenberg's life in China. I have it on my website if you want to go check it out. There... In that photo, you see Sidney Rittenberg standing next to Mao and the chairman, pen in his right hand, the book in his left, pausing to write his name. It's really a great photo. Sidney Rittenberg's street cred was already riding high. But after this photo got around and everyone knew he had shaken the great helmsman's hand, everyone wanted to get close to that magic. He was at the height of his career in China. Perhaps with this popular support and all these accolades, it drove Sidney to embrace the Cultural Revolution with even more enthusiasm. He was right in the middle of struggle sessions and all the negotiations between all the various hot-headed factions of Red Guards. He was out marching and speaking out at meetings and got really caught up in the moment. But again, with the attack on privileges and demanding equality and whatnot, he was unknowingly treading on sacred ground. He thought this was what the Cultural Revolution was about. But then again, you know, whatever Mao decided at the time was the script for the whole crazy movement. So there was Sidney Rittenberg, a 45-year-old rebel amidst all these young teenage and college red guards, speaking out and taking charge. He thought he was doing right. He thought he was doing good. Boy, was he in for a surprise. The beginning of the end 
came for Sidney Rittenberg on the last day of the year, 1966. If you recall from the Cultural Revolution series, you had all these takeovers happening where Red Guards would just go in en masse and seize control of some local party or government headquarters or organization. This happened at the place where Sydney worked, the Broadcast Administration. It happened time and again. These Red Guards would seize power somewhere, and then as soon as they had it, they would be ripped apart by factionalism. 1967 was a year of chaos and horror. Sidney Rittenberg was on the Tiananmen viewing podium again for the 1967 May Day celebration. It was on this occasion that he looked at Chairman Mao from across the room, up there on the Tiananmen viewing podium, and he saw a man who, really for the first time ever, was in complete despair. This whole cultural revolution thing was starting to go awry, and he had no idea how to stop it or at least stop it gracefully. There was no way to fight a forest fire with a single fire extinguisher. On National Day 1967, Sydney didn't get an invitation to the podium. Now the tide was turning. Mao changed his mind and tried to tamp down all the madness. That meant Sidney Rittenberg and all the other outspoken hotheads got it first. You know, in China, under the communist system anyways, at the top, before the axe falls... You always see it coming. The freezing cold shoulder of party disapproval is unmistakable when it happens. Sydney had four small kids, three girls, seven, nine, and ten, and a young son, only two years old. He saw it coming, and come it did. Christmas Day, 1967, he's placed under house arrest, and that's when the interrogators began showing up and, you know, doing their thing. And then one of the hallmarks of the one-party state, the knock on the door at midnight, well, for Sidney Rittenberg, it came at 11 p.m., but sure enough, there was a knock on the door late at night, and on one of the coldest nights Beijing had ever seen in recent memory, security officers from his Wei, the radio administration, came to take him away. It was February 21st, 1968. He knew he was going to be gone for a while, and he painfully said goodbye to his family. He wouldn't see them for ten years. He didn't know it at the time, but as soon as they bundled him up and got him into a car and on the way to prison, they went and took Yulin and the kids, too. You know how it is, just as I said in the Cultural Revolution series. When you got whacked, your whole family felt the pain, too. Yulin went through the same difficulties and unendurable suffering as her husband. It was about a two-hour drive to the prison. It had been 13 years since he had been released in April 1955. Sidney Rittenberg probably had a very good idea what fate awaited him. He put his whole entire being into survival mode and faced it head-on. The next three years were terrible, terrible times of solitary confinement, mental torture, interrogations, all the while listening to the sound of fellow prisoners in surrounding cells get beaten and tortured. And each winter, Sidney Rittenberg faced down a bitter Beijing-style chill that just served as a 24-hour reminder of the harshness of your life circumstances in that prison. Over time... 
and with careful reflection, Sidney Rittenberg came to learn all these things he was screaming for, attacking the authorities, for holding back the masses, promoting democracy within the context of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, attacking the old party system. This is what he believed Mao called for. But what Sidney Rittenberg failed to recognize was that, despite everything, this wasn't what Mao actually wanted, the Gang of Four either. And so, he had to go. But one good thing that brought a measure of stability and pleasure to Sidney's usually unpleasant life were the daily papers. He kept informed, or at least as informed as one could be reading the Chinese press back then. That's where he began to read all about these amazing things that began to happen. First, it was ping-pong players visiting from America, then Henry Kissinger visiting and paving the way for Nixon, and then Nixon himself came and went. He got to read about what happened to Lin Biao, and then all of a sudden, life began to look up again. With the seeming thaw in U.S.-China relations... It looked as if Sidney Rittenberg might stage another comeback and have a new use for the political and diplomatic message the Chinese leaders now wanted to get out. So things got better for him in prison. It came in the form of a bigger and better prison cell, lifting of restrictions that you know, were relaxed or done away with altogether. He read in his prison about the April 4th Tiananmen incident, the fall of Deng Xiaoping, and he felt the ground shake when the great Tangshan earthquake leveled a city and caused the death of a quarter million people. And when Mao died in September, he had great emotions about what this meant for China. But Sidney Rittenberg shed no tears. And Sidney sat alone in his prison cell one night in early October when he heard the unmistakable voice of Jiang Qing screaming as she was hustled into a prison cell. And he knew, finally, after so many years and so many deaths and so many ruined lives, she finally got her comeuppance. With the fall of the Gang of Four, the sun finally came out, not only for Sidney Rittenberg, but for almost all these prisoners of the political kind. On November 19th, 1977, after nine years, eight months, and a day, Sidney Rittenberg emerged from a Beijing prison. He soon found out that it was Jiang Qing and Kang Sheng who were the black hands behind his arrest and incarceration. His children were now aged 20, 19, 17, and 12. He missed the pleasure of watching them grow up. But he was soon to find out they missed their childhoods too. The China government offered as full and official an apology as one could expect. He was given restitution and back pay. When the family was reunited, the government put them all up on an entire first floor of a wing of the Beijing Friendship Hotel. It was a very happy time, a happy reunion. And with the restitution money, Sidney took Yulin to the U.S. for a visit. It was his first time back in 30 years. A lot had changed between 1945 and 1977. He came back to China, but as you might expect, he had had enough. He didn't like what was happening with all the reforms of the late 70s and 80s. It was the Yan'an spirit that drew him to China. He looked at where China was and decided it was time to go back to the home he had left behind in 1945. And that's what he did. The whole family moved to the U.S. on March 17, 1980. 
Despite all those years in China, Sidney Rittenberg had never given up his U.S. citizenship, nor did he ever renounce it. For his next chapter in life, Sidney and Yu Lin discovered that with China's opening up to the outside world, there was a rush to get into China and establish a base of operation, and it didn't take long for big corporations to figure out that Guanxi was everything in China. And you needed people to open up doors and get you access to the key decision makers. This was something Sidney Rittenberg just happened to have in a large supply. And so Rittenberg and Associates was born, and many big U.S. companies have benefited over the years through Sidney's consulting work and door-opening skills. And that's the story of Sidney Rittenberg, ladies and gentlemen. This is about 1% of the story. All the details and fine print is there for you to learn about if you want to know more. I suggest Sidney Rittenberg's book, The Man Who Stayed Behind. What I have introduced today was simply the broad strokes. This has been a life well lived and one that Thoreau would have said was lived purposefully. There's a lot of videos on YouTube of Sidney. You could go check those out too. And once again, the uh, documentary film, The Revolutionary, you can go check that out at revolutionarymovie.com. That's all I have for you this time. Next episode, Numero Ciento, was already recorded a couple weeks ago, so it's ready to go and will be uploaded shortly. As I mentioned, Ray Harris Jr., yes, the Ray Harris from the History of World War II podcast, he flew all the way across country to do this 100th episode program with me, so that's coming up next. And so, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from lovely and sunny Claremont, California. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.